The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Please visit pod617.com to learn about our podcast production services and view our full lineup of shows. All right, sure. You know, you don't know this about me, but there's a little part of me, actually probably a huge part of me, that really wanted to go to Hollywood. Really? Yes. I did not know that about you. No, you did not know that about me, and I just couldn't pull it off. I couldn't pull it off. I figured, Is this sort of like your NBA dream, too? Oh, man, my NBA, my MLB. <laughs> I, was gonna say. I, had, I had every sports dream you can imagine. But Hollywood was always this place where I'm like, damn, that would be so much fun. No matter what you're doing out there, whether you're an actor, whether you're a producer, whether you're behind the scenes, anything in Hollywood to me, it's the coolest job ever. So once I found out about this guy named Matthew Del Negro, and I looked at his resume, and I looked at his Wikipedia, and I looked at everything he's done, I'm like, wait a minute, this guy has been... He's had an unbelievable career. I, I need to know more about Matthew Del Negro. One of my favorite shows is Goliath. You, know, you did not know that about me either. Find, finding out all sorts of new things. And that's starting up <laughs> again in the second year, coming up on June 15th on Amazon Prime. But Matthew Del Negro joining us now on The Media is Running. Matthew, how are you? I'm great. Thank you guys for having me on. Uh, it's very, very cool to uh, be in Beantown again, even though I'm not really there. <laughs> virtual virtual trip it's amazing what you can do now with technology matthew i'll tell you it, it is it is i'm in the 617 i like it yes <laughs> yes well you, being in hollywood take us through uh first of all what brought you out there you graduated boston college in 1994 you had a terrific career playing lacrosse for bc you know you were a stud on campus and then a kid decides to go to hollywood what what, what made you want to be an actor um, actually it, it started at BC, which was, um, between sophomore and junior year, I went to Italy. I kind of had like what I call a quarter life crisis and, um, kind of did a 180, and it was kind of outside my element at BC. And I kind of was going, you know, do I, what, what do I want to do with myself? I kind of thought I was always going to be uh, a lawyer is what I thought. That's my dad does. That's what I liked the way he spoke about it. Um, and then I went on this trip and I kind of ended up writing in a journal and just kind of like reevaluating everything and thought, maybe I'm not going to play lacrosse anymore. I came back, I played fall ball uh, junior year. And at the end of fall ball, I went to coach and I just said, I think I'm done, which was really difficult to do because you know there's this thing ingrained in me you know you don't quit you don't stop you don't and but I also wanted to do other things so he said you know think about it you still got a slot on the team come spring and I said no I've thought about it and I ended up um kind of <laughs> doing what's like the most 180 you could do which was I went out for a play and I did a play at BC which was not even on a real stage it was in a lecture hall it was like a two-night performance I played a guy who woke up in a jail cell in Texas accused of rape. It was a play called uh, Hello Out There by William Saroyan. And I literally did that two-night performance, and I was like, I'm going to be an actor. And that was it. I was an English major. I just started taking film classes, got a film studies minor, um, and you know, moved home to Westchester County, New York after I graduated. Uh, laid patios with this mason over the summer, made some money did a play in Wilton, Connecticut, took classes in the city the following fall, and I moved in January 1st of 95 into a crappy 
fifth floor walk up on 82nd and first and, you know, started taking classes, waiting tables, bartending, all that stuff that you've heard and um, slugging it out. That, that was kind of it. I was in New York for 10 years. You know? So how long before um, you got your, your big break and, and what do you consider your big break? Because I, it may not necessarily be the big role, but it was the role that kind of put you on maybe a lot of people's radar and, and led to other things. So yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's there there was definitely a that kind of big break for me, which was The Sopranos, um, and that was huge. And that'd be pretty big. Of, yeah, that was <laughs> that big qualifies. in terms of like going from being totally anonymous to all of a sudden, you know, being on the subway in New York and people being like, "Dude, you're Tony's boy," you know. <laughs> so that was that was kind of wild. Uh, but before that, actually, I had what I consider to be. A, a pretty big break that involves Boston. It was a movie called the North end. And, um, there's these two brothers from Boston, Frank Ciotta and Joe Ciotta. And I got the role through backstage when I got it, it was non-union. Um, I got the lead, which was pretty cool. And then Frank had been a PA on casino and got the script to Frank Vincent and he signed on to do it. The project became union. He got this other actor, Tony Darrow, who's also, in uh, Goodfellas and a bunch of Scorsese films, they did it and it, it kind of became bigger than it originally was. And we ended up, uh, went up, shot it in, in the North End. Um, it was awesome. It was, it was such a great experience. This is in like 96 or 97. Um, ended up going to like Montreal Film Festival, Boston Film Festival. And it was kind of like, it never really came out, but it was reviewed by Variety. We had a little bit of fanfare at the festivals, and I felt like I was somewhat vindicated for all the crap I was putting myself through in New York because you start to feel delusional when you're doing this. And, you know, the only jobs you're getting are free black box theater, you know, <laughs> and you're like waiting tables and tending bar, and you're like, you know, your, your parents are like, friends are, are working on wall street and coming into the bar where you work and you're pouring them Guinness and you're just like, man, I, I guess, I don't know, man, the BC education, what am I doing? Um, you know, so it's nice to get a little, uh, a little outside recognition. And that was a really nice shot of confidence. It was a cool project. And then, um, you know, they, I, I kind of always say there are no big, you know, there's not the big break. There are a series of breaks, so that was big. And then Sopranos obviously was just big because of the show that it was and, and kind of the, um, the, the spotlight that it put on, like, you know, I just went from being totally anonymous to all of a sudden I was in a smaller pool of actors. So that was cool. What was that like? What was it like to be on that set working on the Sopranos? Oh man. I mean, what a trip that was, that was a, ridiculously lucky experience. Um, very cool because all of my scenes were with Edie Falco and James Gandolfini and they treated me. And, um, the material was great. The show was cool. It was just, it was surreal. You know, it was, um, it was an amazing show. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm inside of it. I'm literally, you know, in the Sopranos living room, pitching Tony on, you know, financial products, because I was a financial advisor. It was it was surreal. Like it was a lot to wrap my head around at the time. So how nerve um, how nervous were you the first day you walked onto that set and you've got Tony Soprano and Carmela and you're sitting there and you've probably watched uh, the yeah. show prior, right? You know, to your, your yes. appearance on it. And so, you know, it's this sort of 
bizarro world you're actually on the set and how nerve-wracking was it to sit down with them and just the first well, scene you, you did it's funny the first scene that you see of me i believe is when i'm in their living room pitching them on these financial um uh products that I'm, I'm trying to get tony to buy into but the first scene that i shot was actually i think from an, like the second episode that i did and it was it was at a racetrack in Long Island. And um, I remember going there and I was in like, they had these things called a four banger, which is like what they give like the low actor on the totem pole. It's basically like a, it's like a porta potty with a bed. <laughs> you know, <it> stinks. <laughs> and I'm sitting out there, it's kind of cold. And I'm like, like just sitting there on ice waiting for my, you know, to get called to the set because they were shooting in the, the horse track. And, um, and I remember talking to my wife and I told her, she's like, why don't you go up to the set, which was great advice. Uh, and I went, I went up a little early and they were still shooting a scene with Tony walking with his CPA and in, in the scene. And, and there were a bunch of extras and I swear to God, thank God I went up to the set then because my heart was palpitating. I mean, I, I, like it, it took, I was like, Holy crap. You know, this is, it, it just was way bigger than I was expecting it to be. And so I had a lot of time watching them run the scene over and over again. Um, and I kind of calmed myself down, you know, felt pretty good. And then they called us over to rehearse our scene. And um, and Gandolfini came over to me like, you know, the the first thing he said, he came over, he's like, ooh, 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 ooh. he's like, we're a bunch of fucking monkeys, kid. <laughs> and, he's like, and, he's, and I was just like, this is amazing. I got, uh, you know, I'm, I, and my, my thought was, I knew when I got the gig, I was going to be there for a while. Um, so as much as I kind of wanted to ask him a bunch of questions and everything, I was like, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to, I'm going to show up prepared. I'm going to do my job. And if he comes around to being cool to me, you know, if I can gain his respect, awesome. And if not, though, I don't want to, you know, kiss his ass before it gets. So I just kind of like, you know, kept my head down, did my job. And then it went, it kind of went well. And he was really kind to me. And <clears throat> really, I, I learned so much watching him work and Edie Falco work. I mean, they're, you know, both amazing actors. And it's, it's like such a shame that he's not with us anymore. I mean, what a great dude, really. Yeah, no, it seemed like he was such a tortured soul in, in some respects. I'm sure you hear that a lot from people. Maybe they ask you, hey, are actors really as screwed up as we think they are? Uh, it's a dark profession, uh, a lot of insecurities. Do you go through that? And it, or is that just a, 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 a myth that we have? Um, I would say, yeah, look, I mean, I, you know, I, made a podcast called 10,000 No's, which is, you know, because I've been kicked in the teeth so many times, I think there is something that comes with being rejected so many times. I mean, I don't think people understand that about actors, that it's like people, you know, like you were saying, oh, go to Hollywood and it's cool, it's glamorous. And it's like, you know, the gist of it is you're really get you're being told no for a living. You know, that that yeah. is... You know, so so there are insecurities when you're not working, when you're not sure what the next gig is going to be. And yet there's also um, after some time you build up this uh, a real confidence, a real faith that you have stared down the abyss before and you've and you've made it happen and you've jumped off the cliff and you've spread your 
arms out and the wind has picked you up before you, you know, cracked your face on the sidewalk. You know, it's like, so there's something, there's both. I think there is a, a tremendous amount of, of, um, confidence that comes with uh, the, the resilience, but there's also the, the insecurity because honestly, man, you don't know. I used to hear actors say this when I was younger. Like I used to hear, uh, like big stars say this when I was younger and I thought they were full of crap They'd go, I don't know if, you know, when I'm done with the job and it, and it wraps, I don't know if I'm going to work again. And I was like, come on, you're, you know, you're Tom Hanks or, you know, you're whoever it might have been. It was a like, huge stars. And now I get it. I get what they're saying. Cause you just, you, you know, you, when you're done, I mean, you have the faith of it, but you, you don't really know when the next thing's coming, you know? So you mentioned that, uh, you know, with James Gandolfini and Edie Falco, you, you know, learned some great lessons on the set there. Any that you, I'm sure there are many that you take, have taken with you, but one, two that you, you know, it's just sort of were either career changers or completely changed the way you approach the job. Yeah, there's so many to so many, um, too many to talk about right here. But I could think of one that comes to mind. Um, am I am I allowed to throw down an f bomb if sure. I'm quoting? Yes, yes. <laughs> we encourage it. <clears throat> so we had a we had a scene where we were um, we were at a casino um, on the show. We were at a casino in Connecticut, and and he and I are like just obliterated, drunk. Um, and we come into this, we come into the scene and I'm like, you know, all over him. He's, I'm like draped and I come in like humming and he, you know, throws me down the couch or sit on the couch and, and the scene goes from there, but I'm wasted. It ends up that I end up puking before getting into a helicopter a little bit after this. So anyway, we're going, we're shooting this. And as the, you know, they call sound speed, which is what they call as the, the sound is getting going. And Gandolfini puts his arms out to his side and he starts spinning around and he goes, come on, come on. You know, he like kind of gives me this, this little thing, like, Let, let's do it. So I put my arms out. I'm like, you know, if, if Tony Soprano is going to tell me to spin around, I'm going to do that. So we put our arms out, we're both spinning around and then the director yells action and we go right into the scene and we're both like really dizzy and kind of stumbling through and, and, you know, go into the scene and it, and it, really worked. And so I'm having a ball because I'm doing this with him. But at some point after maybe three or four takes, not really because I was embarrassed, but just because I was, it was like a lame attempt at small talk with him. I was like, ah, I kind of feel like a jackass in front of them. And I, I kind of nod over to the crew and he goes, he goes, Hey, don't worry about them. And he, and he points to the mat box, which is what surrounds the camera. And he goes, all it matters a fucking box. And, <laughs> and he kind of like, he knew it's a huge lesson, which is like, whoever's on the set, you, you're not there to appease everybody on the set and be polite. You do need to be, you know, you want to be good to work with. You want to be prepared and all that. But when it comes down to it, when it, when it's between action and cut, that performance is for the audience. That's going to eventually consume the show you know and like you cannot be hung up by your own insecurities or worrying about looking you know looking foolish or whatever it is it's like you got to do what you got to do to get the best performance out of yourself so that that was a huge takeaway and he was just so honest on camera i think that's why 
he was so brilliant. I mean, he was so raw and honest and and real. I mean, and and he had so many different uh, sides to him, you know. Yeah, no, he was certainly a guy that uh, I think one of the best actors, I'm sure, that you've ever worked with and probably in the last 20 years or so. But you have Goliath coming up on Amazon Prime, as we mentioned earlier. That starts June 15th. The first year was terrific. It was, uh, it seems like it was, there were so many cliffhangers. There were so many kind of loose ends that were tied in nicely at the end. Billy Bob Thornton is, a, I'm sure, an amazing guy to work with as well. But what what does this role mean to your career, and what have you learned on the set? Um, I I agree with you. I love this show. It's it's um, it's dark. It's gritty. It's also kind of got a, a humor to it, but a very subtle humor. It's well shot. There's cool music. I'm I'm so very very happy and feeling fortunate to be a part of it. Um, the way they worked was right up my alley. It was a really loose set, and I think that comes down from number one on the call sheet down, which is Billy Bob. And uh, there's kind of a there's and and Lawrence Trilling, who is the showrunner. He's actually my guest this week on my podcast. Um, he is he used to do Parenthood, and I had worked with him a little bit on that show, and and yeah. he was the same way, very collaborative and very much like you know, bring what you have to the table. And like, he let you have this improvisational spirit to the scenes. So they really feel loose. Like it, it was, it was a lot of fun to shoot this show. And, and the actors are great. The, the material's great. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to see how it all comes together. Um, I've seen some of the footage. They were nice enough to show me some stuff, and I was really, really happy with it. Um, and I, I can't wait. It's apparently Amazon's most binged show, is what I've been told now. Excellent. Um, that like when people start it, they can't stop it, which is what happened to me. I went when I I didn't see it until I got the gig, and I was like, oh, you know, I I had seen a little bit of it to get the the tone, and then I went to watch it, and it was. It was like I couldn't stop. It was eight episodes, and I watched it in I think two nights. Thornton's one of those guys. Like he was, he, if he was reading the phone book, I'd watch it. That's so funny. That is what every <laughs> single person says. I, I swear to God, that is what every and it's true. It's true. He's so interesting, and yeah. he he's so subtle. And he just brings you to him without seemingly without doing much but you know he's doing a lot on the inside he's just very interesting to watch and you got who, who can make mr woodcock in, interesting or you know <laughs> the reincarnation of the bad news bears i mean that, that's that's talent matthew oh he's he is he's awesome he's a great writer too he's just he's a great artist yeah well the the Ten Thousand knows podcast which can be found on itunes your apple podcast app you've been very successful with that what was the genesis of that idea and why did you start to to get in the podcast biz? Um, I think it was uh, partially it was all the downtime that we're talking about. It's like, you know, you work, you have a great experience, and then you're kind of waiting until you get hired again before you can go do your thing. And I, I kind of was sick of that. And I had started listening to I do voiceovers as well. And, and somebody had turned me on to Mark Marin, WTF. And I listened to that a couple of years ago and I was like, huh, I get, I, you know, I just tend to get into some pretty deep conversations with some people that are like just throughout my life uh, for whatever reason, 
a lot of people that are pretty high up in whatever field they're in tend to tell me a lot of stuff. I, I think it's because I'm really, I don't have an ulterior motive. I'm just kind of interested in people. And I, and I thought about um, myself and all of the, the rejection and kind of like what it looks like from the outside versus what it feels like on the inside. And I thought, huh, it, I bet you if I went and interviewed all these people that were really at the top of their game, like they're entrepreneurs, they are, you know, best-selling authors, there are uh, triathlon, you know, Ironman world champions. I bet you if I interview them, uh, I will find out that their story is not quite as easy as everybody else thinks it is from the outside. And that's been exactly what I found. So it's really just like something, it's almost like therapy for me and like a masterclass for me to go, how can I approach what I do uh, in a better way? And then also how, how can I help people that are listening when they're in that position where they're going for something or they're thinking of going for something and they feel totally alone and how do I get them to go, oh, listen to this, you know, CEO of a company who's absolutely crushing it. And you hear his story and realize, you know, that he was like down and out and didn't know he was going to make it work. You hear that, you feel a little less alone, you're encouraged to go on. And that's that's kind of that's kind of the basic, you know, motivation to do it, really. Hi, doctor. My brother here is pretty sick. What's the problem, young man? Help, I need somebody. Okay, so what hurts? Well, woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Uh, right, then what happened? Y you got that something, I think you'll understand. Is he talking solely in Beatles lyrics? That's right, Doc. It's getting better all the time. It's not, Doc. Ever since he started listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette, it's Beatles 24-7. Ah, uh, look at all the lonely people. Get Back to the Beatles? Yes, it's a podcast on pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. It took me so long to find out, but I found out. Please stop singing Ticket to Ride. Uh, that was actually from Day Tripper. You too, Doc? Gotta admit, I can't wait to log on to pod617.com to hear Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. I give up. Goodbye. Uh, you say goodbye. I say hello. Goodbye, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. So part of it is to kind of, you know, obviously the 10,000 knows is to talk about what it's like to not have such a smooth trajectory in whatever career you choose. And, and I'm wondering, you know, John and I both cover sports. As an athlete, you know, did your athletic background help you navigate Hollywood maybe a little bit uh, more smoothly oh, than, than, than other actors? Hands down, absolutely. I just, I, I was talking to someone yesterday and they asked the same thing. And I said, you know, I think about all of the, you know, anybody who's not an athlete would be like, oh, these are so cliche. But all of the sayings that are in my head that were ingrained by all the coaches, you know, football coaches, lacrosse coaches, just like, you know, all of these just kind of mantras really that you end up me, picking up along the way give us some you know like my like john hurley my freshman football coach john jay high school it was always we had a huge hill behind the school and our field our practice field was down at the bottom of the hill and it was always nobody walks on the hill 
And that was, that was just it. Nobody walks on the hill. If you're going up that hill and he catches you walking on the hill, you're screwed. Like you're running laps. Like, so when you hit the hill, you were like sprinting up the hill, you know, or same guy, he, you know, you would hit the sled. And he'd just do keep them chopping, keep we make fun of him. He go, keep them chopping, keep them chopping, la 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 la, you know, to keep your feet chopping. And it's like just little dumb stuff like that. That you, you know, my my varsity football coach used to do this whole bit about like Saturday, you know, Saturday, we and we would make fun of him, but we kind of it worked. It was like, you know, Saturdays for for your girlfriends and your moms, Tuesdays for champions. And the whole thing was like what you do on Tuesday at practice is going to make you a champion on Saturday. And I think all of those, all of those things are, are just truisms that carry over to whatever field you're in. You know, it's like, what are you doing when nobody's watching? That's, what's going to determine how you end up doing. It's like, it's easy to, to get up and perform when there's a bunch of people around, but how do you pick yourself up on a random day or how do you pick yourself up after you went in and feel like you killed it on an audition and you never you never even heard back you know how do you get up the next day and get yourself inspired to go after it again that those are the things that i learned in sports that have absolutely carried over just like sacrifice and hard work and and like you know having your eyes on the prize and 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 not losing sight of of the love of the game and when you lose sight of the love of the game you should probably get out yeah and you've had a an interesting and eclectic mix of people that you've talked to we're looking at some of the people now uh guys like mark duplass who i think is a very talented hollywood producer uh director actor um Alyssa goodman a cancer survivor beat cancer with Alyssa goodman keisha walker who you just spoke with the bc women's lacrosse coach and i like this title uh shit you don't learn in college with xander fryer what was that all yeah. about that yeah that's his company it's called that's what it's called shit you don't learn in college and um and i met him through another entrepreneur that i know craig ballantyne who i actually also uh interviewed and um yeah, his story was, you know, it was kind of like a uh, a friend of his died when he was, you know, younger. He was a military guy. He was working in a job, doing well, and but not feeling like he was really following his, um, following the right path that he really wanted to do. And he quit his job and started his own business, and um, I, I has done very well. And it's like it's all people, you know, it, it's it's a wide range, and I it's interesting because, because I have a lot of contacts in, in the entertainment field, there end up being, you know, writers, directors, producers, actors, but I, my interests go beyond that. So I've kind of wanted to keep it with, you know, with also with entrepreneurs and athletes. And, and my feeling is this, you could bring anybody to me, anybody. And if you sit down with that person and you questions, They've all got a 10,000 nose story. Every single person out there, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody has it easy. Some people, it looks like they have it easy from the outside. There's something. Scratch the surface. There's always something. That, that's what I've found. 
Mine yeah. might be 25,000 uh, no's. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I'm thinking I might need to up the number of no's. I, I, that's what I'm thinking. I think, I think you uh, might need to go higher. Yeah. Say, with, with, your, with your roles in, in the West Wing and, and Scandal, any thoughts to bringing on politicians, or have you brought on politicians? You know what? That's actually, I don't know that this is going to air today, but there's a guy named Marshall Tuck who I interviewed. And today is the uh, California primaries. And this guy is running for state. uh, I I always get this wrong. It's superintendent of public instruction in California. And he was such a great guy. And actually, I the way I met him, I got dragged to a fundraiser through a friend of mine and I was like, ah, oh, what, you know, what's this going to be? What's this guy going to spout about? And he got up on the mic and just talked honestly for about an hour. And he, he was so impressive and so like, sincere and capable and had experience. It was a Harvard business school guy, had worked in Africa, had, had turned schools around in, in um, low income areas of Los Angeles. And I was just like, this dude is awesome. I went up to him afterwards. I said, Hey, can I, can I talk to you? I, I'd love to sit down with you. And I did. And then I've kind of plugged him on Instagram and just sent out a bunch of emails. And, and I'm not really, I am not super politically involved at all, but I just liked what he stood for. And I think he's going up against people that have more money. And I'm like, whatever I could do to help out, um, this is the kind of guy that I want determining my kid's educational future. So I was like, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, I could, if I can convert two people, great, you know? Uh, and I, there have been, I'm trying to think if there's, I've got a guy who's running for governor of uh, Minnesota that I think I'm going to be interviewing over the summer. And that was through a friend and like, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm open to whoever's got the interesting story and wants to sit down with me. I am, I'm really uh, excited about that. You know? Matthew, the, the million-dollar question before we let you go, and I'm sure you hear it a lot too, is, all right, if your son or daughter wants to go to Hollywood, what advice do you give them if they want to become an actor? First of all, do you let them? Oh, do you encourage what, them? Um, I, I would say, look, here, here's how, how my parents were, I think, is, is pretty cool. They said, listen, because I told them, you know, it's the end of BC, and and – they said, we support you spiritually, psychologically, and everything, but not financially. You got to figure it out. And I think that's a pretty cool way to approach it because whatever my kids do, I want to support them uh, with, with whatever they're interested in. You know, I mean, even my kids are young now, they're 10 and seven. It's like, you know, sports they want to do or activities. You're like, yeah, you want to try it? Let's do it. But I think if you can teach the kid to have to fend for themselves, they're going to know like, okay, this is not as glamorous as you thought it was going to be. And so I, I will give people warning about that. And I'll also say, you know, you can, you can like, like for me, I kind of just said I was going to do it. I, I, I feel like you kind of got to just commit. You got to go like, this is what, I am doing and I, and I, I don't care. I am going to make it work somehow. I'm going to make it work. Um, but yeah, there are plenty of other, I think, smoother paths that your kids could take. Uh, it's, 
it's volatile. It's volatile. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, I can, I can fully appreciate that. Broadcasting is somewhat similar. Let's just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's like, look, if you're not, it, not an it's NPR. The same thing. No, not an NPR. But that's it, for sure. Yeah. No, no, but it's the same thing with with athletics. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, you gotta. I mean, it's just the economics of it. I don't know if you guys ever read Freakonomics, but they talk about they, you know they're comparing like uh, McDonald's franchises to uh, crack houses in Chicago and, and like the infrastructure of them being the same. And then they go, the only two fields that don't have the comparison are professional sports and acting because there are so many applicants and there are so few opportunities. So like the economics are just, are not great. So, as, but as long as you go in knowing that my, my thought is like, you got to go in with open eyes and go, this is the deal. How am I going to now navigate this? And how am I going to give myself the best chance to be sustainable? And, and a lot of those things are way outside of acting. I mean, they have to do with like, get a cheap apartment, that kind of stuff. So you can, so you can go do plays for free and not be on the street. You know what I mean? It's like that stuff in the beginning, you have to go into it with a game plan. So those, those early years where it's really lean, you can study, work on your craft, get experience and, and still survive long enough that everybody else starts to drop out. And then you're not in quite as big of a pool. And then you can start to have more success. That that's kind of how it worked for me. I, I just, you know, I think, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to tell anybody any any parental advice. I'll just say, you know, think about it. Think about it before you want to go into it, you know? That's no, great advice, and you've been a tremendous guest. We really appreciate your time. Are, are you, uh, is the next frontier directing? Or writing? You know what? It, it, it's, it's funny. I've been, I actually just finished my first draft on a feature that I, I want to direct and star in. And so that's where I, my mind is right now. I've actually helped some friends out. Uh, I've been a producer on other films where I've helped with the writing, but not taken writing credit. Um, I've, I've helped develop things of friends I've directed friends in their projects, but you know, not for credit on it. And now I feel like I'm, uh, I'm kind of itching to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt you'll you'll accomplish it, Matthew. We we don't have any uh, doubt. I don't have. Any thank doubt. you for the vote of confidence. Yeah, it'll, it'll be coming to a theater near you in the next couple of years. Well, we look forward to that absolutely. And you know, we're trying to bring the show out to L.A. because to do an L.A.-based uh, show. So you're going to definitely uh, show us the ropes out there when we do go out there. Is that all right? Oh yeah. We'll, we'll borrow your podcasting studio. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Seriously. Oh yeah, no no! Us folks from Boston need to stick together. We're in. We're on, man. We do. Yes, despite the fact. What are you a Yankee fan? I I was a I was a big Yankee fan growing up. I mean, I'm I'm not like a huge. It, it's funny for all the sports I played. I feel like I am. Something happened to me along the way where, like, when I was a kid, I was I was so diehard, and then I got older, and I felt like I just saw the. I don't know. It, it was different back then. It was like you, your team was your team. And now I feel like teams kind of like disband and everybody's being traded. And so yeah, I, I don't know that I can. The four, four, only four players return and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's, it's not, not, yeah, not exactly. They're all mercenaries. Yeah. 
Yeah, it feels like it feels so different to me. So I don't I don't feel like I'm fully vested with anything. But yeah, growing up, you know, back back in the day it was Yankees. Um, yeah, you know, used to go to those games. And then when I was living in the city, I, I went to uh, we used to have like Derek Jeter used to come into the bar where I bartended because he was friends with one of the guys that worked the door. So got to know some of those guys. Um, and uh, that was fun. And that was a good you know, that was like late 90s, yeah. early 2000s, pretty cool time in the city so well you've you've had an amazing run and uh, we look forward to hearing more about it soon good luck with goliath coming up on amazon prime and of course Ten Thousand knows your great podcast on itunes or your apple podcast up app thanks for the time matthew thank you matthew thank you guys so much i really really appreciate it thank you all that matters a fucking box What up, gangsters? From pod617.com, it's Shawshanked, the podcast. I'm your host, Uncle Buck. Nick Stevens. You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. Matty Blake. Come on, do it. Kill me. It's Georgie Kip. This movie has everything. Kiss masks. Lee Trevino. Shawshanked. Movies that you get Shawshanked by. Shawshanked. I guess I just miss my friend. Shawshanked. Make sure to check for new episodes of Shawshanked regularly at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. In pod, we trust.